So today we're going to be continuing on in this minor prophet Habakkuk, which is, like I said, fun to say, Habakkuk. That's a fun word. It's a minor prophecy because it's not a long prophecy, not because it's not important. So uh, that's one thing I always want to try to remind everybody. The minor prophets are not minor in their message. They're just a little bit shorter. So today, as we continue on in this prophecy, we're going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. But as you turn there, I want to just try to get our minds straight about where we're going in today's message based on last week. So think about this. Have you ever had any time in your life when you've kind of, I don't know, felt, felt good about yourself? Like um, maybe not full-blown self-righteous, but you were kind of, kind of proud of how you've been uh, living or how you're doing in life, just in general. Um, if you've ever had thoughts about that, maybe you would never come out and say it. Maybe you'd never admit that to someone else that you thought you were doing really well. But maybe the thought has crossed your mind. That's all I'm saying. Maybe you've had that passing thought. Or maybe you've ever looked at someone else in the midst of, you know, you're looking at your own life, you're kind of evaluating yourself, and you say, I think I'm doing pretty good, you know. I've had some rough times in my life at other times, but right now, right at this moment, I think I'm doing pretty good. And then maybe that causes you to look at someone else, someone else's life, and then you might have this thought. I cannot believe they did that. And for, for maybe just a brief moment, that self-righteousness creeps in. Because here's what's happening in our hearts when that happens. And, and I don't think we mean to do this. I just think it's because we're all sinners. We're human. And so this is part of the human sinful condition. At that moment, we're looking at other people and something another person does or did. And we're saying to ourselves, well, I can't believe they did that. I would never. I would never do something like that. Well, here's the problem. The moment we have that thought, if we allow that to continue in our heart, what does the Bible tell us about pride? It comes before what? A fall. This is a, a, a terrible predicament to be in because it seems so natural. Because if someone else's action seems worse than our own, in our subjective opinion, you know, we're, we're not really good at at judging our own actions and our own attitudes and our own words. We're really good at looking at other people and judging their actions and their attitudes and their words. So we, what we end up doing is we judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, I, I didn't mean to do that. I would never do that on purpose. And so it seems less in our own mind, even though we look at somebody else and we don't give them that same benefit. You follow what I'm saying? It's a mindset, it's, or it's a heart condition, really. It's not just a mindset, it's a heart condition. So after we have those thoughts, if we're paying attention, which I hope we are, and we think about, well, what does God think about all that? Hopefully, we come to this conclusion. We consider all those thoughts that we just had, and then we say, you know, I'm really not any better than that other person. And, you know, were it not for the grace of God, that could be me. 
You know, you look at somebody else and somebody else's predicament, somebody else's uh, mistake, or, or somebody else's sin, and it's healthy to say, you know, I didn't mess up this time, but, you know, if it were not for the grace of God, that could have been me. And I think it's a healthy situation to be in when you understand we're all sinners. We all need God's mercy. We all need God's grace. And from time to time, we all need God's discipline. Now, discipline, we, had, we could do multiple messages just on discipline because it's not pleasant. Um, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, all discipline at the moment seems to be unpleasant, but it, it has a purpose. It's to make us more like Jesus, if we'll submit to it and, and realize what it's for. So that's kind of the background behind where we're going today because if you remember last week, God answered this prophet because the prophet was kind of upset about some things and, and, and God answered the prophet and said, hey, look, am look among the nations. You're not going to believe what I'm about to do. That's basically what he said. I'm going to do something, he says in verse 5, Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I'm going to do something among the nations, among you, that you wouldn't believe it if it was told. And he, he says, I'm going to raise up this terrible people, and they're going to be my instrument of discipline. So today we're following up on that, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to go through the end of that paragraph, which actually ends in chapter 2 and verse 3. So we're going to go from 112 to 2-3. Let's uh, follow along in the text as I read it. And this is what God says to us through this prophet. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting? This is the prophet thinking about God. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net, and they gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net, and they burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I'll stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I'll keep watch to see what he'll speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then... The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come and it will not delay. Lord, I pray today you'll speak clearly to us through your word. Help our hearts and our minds and our ears all to be attentive to the truth you want to share with us today. And Lord, I pray you will not allow me to mess it up, that I'll only say what is consistent with your word so that we all will receive your truth 
and that you'll give us the strength we need to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what's going on. There's some foundational principles we need to know when we're dealing with difficult situations because we all deal with difficult situations and the title of the message today is God has the answer because this prophet in this position here hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago for that matter, 700 years roughly before Jesus was even born, he is looking at the situation. Now, now see if this doesn't seem familiar to us. This prophet is observing what's going on, what's about to happen to him and to, his, to the people of God, and he is questioning and doubting God. Anybody ever question God? You don't have to raise your hand, because I imagine everybody has at some point. Have you ever doubted what God's doing or why? Or maybe you're doubting because maybe you thought God was supposed to do something and he didn't. So See, that's where, that's where this prophet is. He's not sure what's going on because he hears what God has said to him so far and he's still not too sure how he feels about that. So here's the, the foundational principles we all kind of need to get a hold of if we're going to apply this text to our lives in a way that's going to be constructive, in a way that's going to help us to be more biblical and follow Jesus better. So here's the, the way we face our problems biblically. First of all, we've got to stop and think about our situation. You know, a lot of times we want to speak first or act first instead of thinking first. And usually, in time, and I'll just be you know, honest with my personal experience, the times that I speak or act before I think things through, those are the times I usually mess things up. That's just me, you know, my personal experience. That's, that's what happens. If I don't take time to think about things, what, what, God, what are you doing here? What is it that you want me to do? Or how, do you, how should I react to this? If I don't take time to think, I usually make a mistake. So first thing, foundationally, stop and think about your situation. Second thing is, remind yourself of what you know to be absolutely certain. In other words, here's how I like to think of it. When I'm in a confusing situation, I just don't know what to do, I try to go back and say, all right, what do I know is absolutely true about God? What do I know that this is no debate, this is a non-negotiable, who is God? What do I know about God? Well, I know he's holy. I know he's faithful. I know he's sovereign over everything. I know he loves me. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's faithful. All these, I know those things for sure because, one, the Bible tells me, and two, I've seen it. I've experienced it. So I, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt of any, there's no, no debate, this is who God is. God always has my best interest in mind. God knows what's right for me. It doesn't matter if I understand it. It certainly doesn't matter if I agree with it. God doesn't need my consent. You hear me? God doesn't ask my permission to do what he needs to do in my life to make me more like Jesus. Because if that was the case, guess what? 
I don't think many of us would cooperate the way God wants us to cooperate. So he doesn't, ask, he doesn't need our permission. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't need my permission. Okay, He's God. So these are the types of things that I need to think. What do I know is absolutely true? What can I bank on? It's not going to change. Okay, That's the second thing. What is absolutely certain? Third thing is apply that truth to my problem. Take those non-negotiable things. I know for sure this is the truth. This is never going to change. How does that affect me and my situation right now? And then after I've done all that, if, if, if I still don't feel better about things and feel like I'm okay, God's got this handled, if I'm still not right, then if I'm still doubting, I just need to surrender my problem to God and have faith that, remember what I just said about who he is? Okay, I can trust that. I don't get it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. But God's got it under control. That's hard to do. When you get to that point, you still don't have any light at the end of the tunnel. So here's the setting with this text and with this prophet as he's dealing with God's message to the people. He finds himself troubled by two major problems. So there's two major issues that the prophet here is dealing with in his mind. Let's see if this doesn't sound familiar and you can apply it to your own life and situation. First of all, he views God's lack of action as a weakness or a defeat. Now, if we think about it long enough, we'll understand, well, God, God's not weak. He's strong. I mean, he's the strongest there is. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. Okay? But we could, we could temporarily believe something that's not true based on our circumstances. That's why it's so important that second step, remind yourself what is absolutely certain that you know for sure is true. So that's the first issue this prophet's having. He sees the, that, that God's not acting or not doing what he thinks he ought to do, and so he sees that as a weakness or a defeat. And the second thing is, he's trying to reconcile in his own heart and mind, well, if God is holy, because I know that about God, if he's holy, why is he using this nasty, horrible people, these Chaldeans that, that he mentions, why is he using them to bring discipline on the people of Israel? So it's not like a complete denial of guilt, but it's like, well, yeah, okay, we messed up, but we're not as bad as they are. Are you going to use these bad people to discipline us? You ought to discipline them. See, that's the human way of thinking. Deal with them. They're worse than we are. It's like me driving down the interstate. It's funny how everything kind of goes back to me and driving. And So if I'm going down the interstate and the speed limit's 70 miles an hour and I'm doing 77, I don't expect to get pulled over. Now, I'm technically exceeding the speed limit. So I'm wrong. I, got, I don't have a leg to stand on. If he asks me, what's the speed limit? And I'll say 70. How fast were you going? 77. Okay. So what don't you understand about this? All right, well, here's my thing. If I'm going 77 in a 70-mile-an-hour zone, and I'm getting past, then I'm thinking, well, pull them over. They're going 85, 90. I'm just doing 77. Leave me alone. Get the real bad people. Right? Because they're worse than me. That's my, that's my messed up thinking. I forget that I'm doing anything wrong. Because in my own mind, I'm not. They're worse than I am. So go punish them. Okay? Exactly what's going on here. This prophet 
cannot reconcile in his own mind, well, if God's supposed to be holy and good, why is he picking on us and using this horrible people to do it? He ought to be punishing them. They're worse than we are. In other words, you ever say this before? Well, they're a, they're a much worse sinner than I am. Really? See, see, you see what's wrong with that? Nestled in that statement, while it may be true, they're a much worse sinner than I am. What have I just done? I've just admitted I'm a sinner, which means I've done wrong, which means I deserve punishment as well. But in my mind, I'm trying to rationalize that whatever I've done is not near as bad as whatever somebody else has done. Therefore, I should be given a free pass. So my sin, since it's in comparison not as bad, I'll just let me go. But see, that's not, that's not right, is it? Because just because someone else has done something worse than I have, that doesn't mean I haven't done anything wrong. It doesn't mean I don't still need discipline in my own life. So that, that's what the, the prophet's dealing with. He, he can't reconcile these things in his own heart and mind. So here's what he does when he applies this method, what we just talked about, to his situation. Okay, he uses this very thing right here in this passage. And here he says in verse 12, what do I know about God? He's rehearsing it and he's saying it to us. Look what he says in verse 12. He identifies four attributes of God that are going to inform his personal situation. First of all, he says God's eternal because he says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting? So he, he rehearses in his mind, God's eternal. Then he says God is holy because he calls him, O Lord my God, my holy one. So God's eternal, God's holy. Then he says God is sovereign because look what he says in this next line. He says, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. So he's talking about the fact that God says he's going to raise up this people to discipline Israel. And he says right here, you've appointed them to judge. Therefore, you must be sovereign because you have control and you have the ability to appoint this people to bring about your desired result in us, that punishment that we're supposed to have. So he's identifying the fact that God is sovereign. So he's eternal, holy, he's sovereign. And then he says, God is faithful. He calls him the rock. He says, you, O rock, have established them to correct. The word rock there means faithful. So this prophet has identified for himself, he's applying this method of what do I know for sure is true about God? He's sovereign, he's faithful, he's holy, he's eternal. Now, how does God's character come to bear on the plight of the people here? Because, you know, God said he's going to raise up this people, they're going to judge Israel. Well, let's look at them one by one. First of all, God's eternal. So this invasion is not his last word concerning the people of Israel. That's not how it's going to end. They're going to get punished, but it's not going to be punished forever. It's for a time. God is holy. The outcome will not be evil, but good in the final analysis. So just like when a parent has to discipline their child, just like when God has to discipline us as his children, it's not forever. It's for good. It's not for evil. It's not to do us harm. It's to correct us. So the end result, because God is holy, the end result is going to be 
good for us. It might not seem good when it's happening, but the end result is going to be good. Going back to Hebrews 12, talking about a father's discipline. The end of that passage there is as the writer talks about a father and disciplining his children. And he's talking about God. And he says, uh, it seems unpleasant at the time. He says, but at the end, to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's a, a beautiful way of putting that. That discipline seems unpleasant when it's happening. But once you've been disciplined, the result is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's going to be for your good. How about God's sovereignty? It's not happening by chance. God is in control. He says, you have appointed this people to judge us. And fourth, God is faithful. They are still God's people in spite of their sin. God, you know what? What does it mean when a parent disciplines a child? What emotion, what, what, what does that demonstrate? Love. If you don't care about your kids, you go ahead, just do whatever you want. I don't care. But if, if you love them and you care what happens to them and you care what kind of life they live, then you're going to discipline them because you love them and you want them to have the best possible life they can have. And sometimes that means correction. And it might seem horrible when it's happening, but what's the end result? My daddy always used to say to me right before I got a beating, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. I said, well, then don't do it then. Save yourself some pain. If it hurts you so bad, just don't. But you know what? I'd, it's not until you get in a different perspective. It's two things I've learned about being a parent that I didn't know before I was a parent, even though my dad told me. One, I've learned that I, I never knew how much we could love somebody. And I never understood the hurt, the hurt that, that you experience when you have to discipline your kid. And, and you can't know those things. Our young adults, teenagers, you will never know those things until you're in that position. You, you cannot possibly fathom until you have experienced it. Because the, the hurt that my daddy was talking about was not physical. It was inside. And I just didn't get that. So think about God and his children you think it brings God pleasure to have to discipline his kids? No, but he knows it's got to be done. Because the ultimate end is, is good. So, first half of this passage, even though it's only a verse, Habakkuk's conclusion at this point is, this circumstance of this horrible people being raised up to discipline these people of Israel, it's a tool in God's hand for the correction and the purification of his people it's for their good so when you have to discipline a child it's ultimately it's for their good otherwise you, you wouldn't do it so the second half of this which is really the bulk of this passage when you move on to verse 13 
it's almost like he's having second thoughts. He concludes the truth here, but then he has some second thoughts. What do I know about God? And look what he says in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You can't look on wickedness with favor. So then he gets to that point. He says, so why are you doing this? You ever question God? You ever ask God, why in the world are you doing this? Has he ever answered? I feel like the answer to me sometimes comes back in the word I've already read. He's, God's never spoken to me audibly. If he did, I think I'd fall out. But he's, he, he speaks in his word. He's told me, what, well, why are you doing this, God? Well, did you forget what you just read? Did you fit, forget what, you know, my characteristics? So Habakkuk rehearses all this again. He asks these questions. And then here's the truth about God again. Remember, we go back to what we know for sure is true. A holy God hates sin and can do no evil. Because otherwise it would violate his holiness. So the holy God hates sin. A holy God can do no evil. So what should I do about that? Well, I need to surrender this problem to God because God knows things that I don't know. And if, if for a moment, if we doubt that, can you think of any instance in the course of history where maybe God would have demonstrated this exact scenario in a way we could understand? Can you think about it? How about Jesus going to the cross? How about Jesus sitting in the garden praying? Do you remember what he prayed? Because, you know, sometimes I get caught off guard by circumstances and I feel like I just don't understand God why are you doing this is there another way well Jesus asked that same question he pleaded father and son first and second person of the trinity in in conversation as it were and says father take this cup from me you remember that the cup of wrath that he was going to drink when he went to the cross if, there, if there's any other way for your will to be accomplished, let's do that because I don't want to do this. But he didn't end his prayer right there. He said, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, do you remember what he prayed? Not my will. Your will be done. What a picture. We don't, we don't have to understand everything God's doing for it to be right. Jesus, in his humanity, now he was God and man, but in his humanity, he's praying in the garden and he says, please take this away from me. But, I know your will's right. So if this is the way it has to be, so be it. And that's basically the, the sentiment of that prayer. Not, not my will, your will be done. So we learn from the example of Christ going to the cross. God is always right, and a, a holy God will never command anything that's wrong. That's one of those non-negotiables. If we believe God is who he says he is and who he reveals himself to be in the Word and in our lives, if we believe that, we have no business doubting how he works and brings about his purposes. That, that's not consistent. If you really believe in God and you believe he's truthful and faithful and 
does what he says he's going to do and says what he means and means what he says, if we believe the Bible, why would we doubt that God? He's good. I'm reminded of this this, uh, part of the story. You you know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a bunch of books, but he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia. There's a particular exchange in that story where one of the characters is questioning Aslan, the, the, the lion, the king. And, and he asks, is he safe? And the answer is no, but he's good. It might not be safe. It might not feel good. But God is good. If he has to discipline us, we have to trust that it's for our own good. If, we, if, if your parent ever had to discipline you and you didn't like it at the time, but it ended up the right thing, God is infinitely more trustworthy than any human being. If he's disciplining his people, he has a purpose. So this prophet is going back through and rehearsing all these things. What do I know about God? How do I know I, I can trust him? Well, he's demonstrated over and over. His word tells me and, and shows me how I can trust him. And then I've experienced in real life how I can trust him. And he asks these questions. And then he gets to the point where he says, uh, I'm going to have to take a step of faith. Because you get to chapter 1, verse 17, right before his uh, last statement. And he's asking these questions, and when it transitions to chapter 2, he says, all right, I'm going to stay on my post. I'm going to station myself at this particular spot. And he says, I'm going to keep watch, and let's see what God says. Let's see how he answers me. The last sentence of chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm going to see how I might need to respond whenever... I'm reproved. You know what to reprove means? See, it's almost like he knows what's coming. Well, God's going to correct me here because I know know I'm probably not right here. So when I'm reproved, I'll see how I need to reply. So chapter 2, verse 1, he's exercising faith and says, All right, God, I know you have the answer. I'm waiting for the answer. So verses 2 and 3 give us the answer that God gives to the prophet. Now, so what are we supposed to learn from this prophet? I mean, this is two little points of application here as we get ready to get to the end. What do we need to learn from this prophet and the way he handles his doubts? Because we all have doubts from time to time. How should we handle it? Well, what did he do in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 1? This tells us what we can do to handle our doubts. He says... I'm going to commit my problem to God. I'm going to expect an answer from God. And then I'm going to watch and wait for the answer to come. So chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to stand my post, station myself right here. I'm going to keep watch to see what God will say to me and how I can reply when I'm reproved. So God's going to get the problem. All right, God, it's all yours. I can't fix it. I'm going to give it to you. And now I'm going to wait for your answer. And that's the hard part to, to, to wait when you know, you know, you give it to God and then you've got to wait for him to say something, that's tough sometimes. 
but he does answer. And look at verses 2 and 3, the last two verses here. Here's the answer. Write down what I'm about to tell you. That's what he says. Record the vision, write it on tablets. Inscribe it on tablets so that the one who reads it may run. You know what that means? I'm going to tell you the answer you've been asking for, and I want you to write it down, and I want you to write it. He says, inscribe it on tablets. So this is not something that can be erased or, or changed. Inscribe it on tablets so the one who sees it can run. In other words, when everybody else reads it, they're going to run and tell somebody else. Pass the word. Pass it on. Let people know what the answer is. And then he says, this vision is going to happen when I say it's going to happen. Because God's timing is always right. He's never early, but he's never late. This is going to happen at the appointed time. And then he says the vision's not going to fail. He says, wait for it. it might, you might feel like it's going to tarry, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen how I say, when I say. That's, what God, that's the answer God gives him. Because God's sovereign. He's in control. And so as a foreshadowing to next week, the very next verse, the very next verse, Habakkuk 2.4, quoted three different times in the New Testament, says the righteous is going to live by faith. Habakkuk, you trust me? You hear what I'm saying to you? I'm giving you the answer. You trust what I'm saying? Because the righteous man has to live by faith, not by sight. So what do we learn from God's answer? What's the nature of this answer, the, uh, the nature of prophecy? Well, it's God's revelation to man. That means it's not something we can just think up and just make up on our own. We can't think it through and come to our own conclusion. This is a message from God to man. Also, it's a foretelling of events. God knows what he's doing. He's going to tell you what's, what he's going to do. It's certain fulfillment, so it's going to definitely happen. And it's exact fulfillment. It's going to happen precisely how he says it's going to happen. So here's the conclusion that Habakkuk hears from God. It's like this. I've heard your prayer, Habakkuk. I understand what's bothering you. This is like what, what he may have heard or how he may have interpreted this answer from God. He's, God says, I've heard your prayer. I understand what's bothering you. Here's my answer. It is true that I've raised up this Babylonian people to punish Israel but it doesn't mean I'm endorsing their sin. But on the contrary, I'm going to judge them in due time. I've raised them up and I'll bring them back down again. They're going to suffer the full outpouring of my wrath. And meanwhile, my people will be purified of their sin. See, that's the goal right there. That's, that's why he's doing all this to begin with. Purify my people from their sin. He said, they'll be restored to my favor. And while this is happening, the one who is truly righteous is going to live by faith in me. That's what God says. And then he says, write it down, make it plain, so anyone that reads it can live by it and pass it on. About seven years ago, yeah, I think it was seven years ago, I met a man named Abraham. He's a church planter in China. And we had a, we had a pretty deep conversation just about, about church, about ministry. And uh, he was telling me some things about 
what he encounters as, I mean, just imagine a church planter in China. You know, Christianity is not popular in China. It's growing like wildfire underground, but it's not, you know, it's not popular if you ask the government. And um, so uh, the conversation helped me a lot. I mean, we, we talked for a while, and he was telling me, he gave me a good perspective. But, um, but there's one thing he said to me during that conversation that I'll never forget. He said, in the, we were, I forget how we got to this point, but he, at one point he looked at me and he said, I don't think the American church will ever pray for persecution. And, and I was like, what, huh? And I, I guess he just looked at my face and saw that I was confused because when he said that, I was like, why in the world would we pray for persecution? I mean, I know persecution may... You know, it may happen to us in the United States at some point. And I know it's happening all over the world already to Christians. But why in the world would I be, would I want persecution to happen? But that's what he said. He said, I don't think the American church will ever pray for persecution. And so I asked him, I said, can you explain that? And here's what he said. He said, I don't think American Christians will pray for persecution because they don't understand that persecution purifies the church. He said, only true believers are going to remain when their lives are on the line. He said, you want to know why the underground Christian church in China is multiplying and growing like wildfire? Because it's real. There is no one in China that's going to willingly identify with Jesus Christ unless they mean it, unless it's genuine, because they know if they willingly identify with Jesus Christ, it could mean their death. Not just, I'm not talking about just hypothetically. They could be arrested and, and tortured and killed. As it is in, in many other countries. So, what he was telling me was, persecution has a benefit in the purity of the church. I guarantee you, when believers get together underground in China, there's nobody playing church. There's nobody that's not there for, because their heart's in it. They're, they're real. They're devoted. They know what the cost is of following Jesus. It could be their, their life. But they know that, and they still, they still want to be. So you might be thinking, well, why in the world are you tell me that? What's that got to do with this sermon? What's that got to do with this scripture? Well, I'll tell you. Habakkuk just pitched a fit when God told him how he was going to discipline the people. He didn't want a part, any part of the persecution. And then he realized it was for their own good. And they'd be better off after going through the discipline that God had for them.
Bottom line is this. God knows what he's doing. So let's trust him. Let's pray.